This morning we continue in our, our series through the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And I entitled this morning's message, Do You Want to Face Your Past? Revenge seems to be the name of the game. If you've ever been wrong, the plan is that you need to devise a way to get them back, to get even. Some of the best-selling novels of all time are about revenge. Hamlet by Shakespeare, The Count of Monte Cristo, Iliad by Homer. Have you guys ever read The Count of Monte Cristo or even seen the movie? Edmond Dantes had a very promising future, a loving fiancé, soon to be captain of his own ship, and it all goes away when he's charged with a crime that he didn't commit, and he's thrown into prison for how long? You want to guess? 13 years. It's eerie how similar it is to Joseph. He's a good guy, a nice guy, kind and generous, but evil falls on him by those closest to him. And while in prison, another inmate gives him um, teachings and clues about this great treasure and trains him. And he finally escapes, and he finds the treasure of Monte Cristo and becomes the most powerful and wealthy person. But all on his heart, all that's dictating his life is revenge. He wants justice. And isn't that what, what the world would agree needs to happen? He, he, he figures out all, that, all the people that plots against him, for the first mate, the prosecutor, even his best friend, and, and he carefully and wickedly devises a multi-layered plan to seek revenge on each one of them. There's no grace, there's no mercy. There's a drive for justice and it's motivated by bitterness and hate. For Edmund Dantes, the 13 years in prison is, only fuels his anger towards those that did this to him. He will get even. He, he will get his revenge and make them pay. But it's totally different for Joseph in Genesis. It's a different story that we read in these three chapters. Joseph, for his 13 years in prison, brought a much a different change in his life and his, his thinking. He, he's ready to forgive, it seems. He realizes that God is sovereign and has ordered his steps. And as we'll find out, God has ordered the steps of his brothers too. There's a reconciliation that God is orchestrating here. And it's not of Joseph's doing or his brothers. God is behind it all. And the question, the overarching theme is, do you want to face your past? If you've ever been hurt, if you've ever suffered the hands of others, maybe the answer for you is no, I don't. You want to forget and move on. But perhaps these chapters might have some insight, some help to you in the situation that you're faced. This morning, the plan is to walk through three chapters of Genesis. Chapter 42, we'll walk down the first point, memory lane, walking down memory lane as we see the brothers going to Egypt. In chapter 43, we'll wait for real change in the brothers. And then last chapter 44, we'll see a willing substitute. It may seem a lot to cover, but we'll move along and God will use his word to bring change, hopefully for his honor and glory in our lives. So let me pray and we'll dive in. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we can gather together in freedom to sit under your word preached. And we ask God that you would teach your people, that you would help them understand what your word says and apply it to their life, that we would come away changed and different for your honor and for your glory. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. First, they're walking down memory lane, Genesis 42. It's been 20 years since Joseph was sold into slavery. Do you think the brothers remembered what they did to Joseph? Have they even moved on? Well, chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? That's a good verse to memorize, right? By the way, if you haven't opened your Bible, you're going to need it open because we're really just going to go right through these chapters. And if you're using a Bible that's provided, it's on page 33. 
So the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers, okay? So Genesis 42, and now look at verse 2. And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Why do you think they paused and looked at each other when Jacob mentioned that there's food to buy in Egypt? What, what did Egypt bring to their memories at that moment? What, that faithful day when their jealousy drove them to sell their brother to the traders who were heading to Egypt. And I'm sure they're suffering because of the famine, but they're also suffering because of their sin. Their past sins casted a shadow over them. It lingers with them. Look at verse six. Now Joseph was the governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. He said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have, have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is I said to you, you are spies. By this you be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you were spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. See, Joseph's the one in charge. He's the governor over the food distribution program in Egypt, and he remembers his dreams. Do you remember his dreams? That his brothers and even his father would one day bow down to him. And what do we have here in verse 6? But ten brothers bowing down to him. Do you see the humor of God? Sometimes reconciliation, though, happens when we don't plan it at all. Joseph had been gone from Canaan 20 years, and there's no mention of him ever trying to find his family. Seems as he wanted to move on. He, he remembered what happened to him, but ultimately he wanted to put his past behind him. But God wouldn't let him. We can't forget, no matter how hard we try, the troubled relationships from our past. And now reconciliation begins to happen, even when Joseph wasn't planning on it. And fighting against God's plan never works. God was arranging things so that this incredibly broken family could be healed. Joseph couldn't have planned it this way. God had to do it. So Joseph sees them and he knows them, but they don't recognize him. It's been 20 years. Back, back when they saw him last, Joseph was 17, a, a bearded Hebrew lad, probably sun bronze. And now he's no longer tan. The Egyptians were the elite class and they stayed out of the sun. And he would be clean shaven and distinct hairstyle. He looked Egyptian, and he spoke Egyptian. What do you say at this moment? I'm sure he didn't expect to see his brothers when he woke up that morning. He was probably going along his day, performing his duties, when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he's thrust back in his mind 20 years to that horrible day when he was thrown into a pit with his brothers laughing and mocking him and turning their backs on him to sell him as a slave. It seems as though Joseph has changed 
But he wants to see if his brothers have changed. So he asks if they're spies. He's testing them. He's asking questions to discern what has happened at home since he's been gone. He he wants to know, have they changed at all? He, He understood the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Do you understand the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation? The reason why you might struggle to forgive people is that you fail to understand that forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Forgiving someone does not mean acting as if nothing happened. Forgiveness is releasing someone of pain for what they've done, but reconciliation is mending that relationship. Real reconciliation involves rebuilding of trust when both parties to a broken relationship approach each other in forgiveness and true repentance. See, Joseph may very well have forgiven his brothers, but now he asks, can I trust them? They would need to bring their youngest brother to him. And how would they treat this brother? How would they view him? Would they view this youngest brother the same way they viewed Joseph? And so he puts him in prison to think it over. But he's gracious. Because the text says he only stays three days. And then in verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you're in custody and let the, go, let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. The plan was for them to head back, but Joseph would confine one brother in prison. And and right after, he tells them of the imprisonment of the one, they spill out all that's happening in their hearts. Sometimes God has to use severe methods before we will face up to what we truly are. The brothers see, they, they turn to talk to themselves. See, this whole time, Joseph's been playing the part. He speaks Egyptian. He has an interpreter to communicate with them. They don't know this. They turn to have a family discussion. But in it is a confession in the verses. It says in verse 21, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, Joseph. They're talking about Joseph. And that we saw the distress of his soul. So we get more insight of what happened that fateful day. When he begged us, when he begged us and we did not listen. That's why the distress has come upon us. See, they realize they know what they've done. And through their own personal distress, they finally come to understand the distress that they had so wickedly inflicted on their own brother. As they face suffering, they begin to see Joseph as a fellow sufferer. See, suffering can have a powerful humanizing effect on our souls, on our selfishness. I'm sure the cries of Joseph that they heard that day rang in their ears. It it was on their mind. They couldn't shake it. They knew the evil that they had did to their brother, and they won't forget it. God won't let them. He will remind them of their sin. It will trail with them 
It will haunt them. It will follow their lives until there's repentance. It seems they, they might all be ready, but then Reuben, oh, Reuben, Reuben opens his mouth. I believe, my opinion, he essentially removes himself of responsibility here. You hear what he says? It, it's, it's their fault. He told them not to do it. He's trying to wipe away the guilt that he feels. He wants his brothers to bear it all. They did this, not him. But what about the coat? What about the coat that they dipped in blood as they walked back as brothers to the father and returned? What about the contrived story that they allowed Jacob to believe what happened to their beloved son, Joseph? For 20 years, Reuben allows his father to live in agony. 20 years, he lies to his father. He's guilty. And see, Joseph hears all of this. He hears their sin. He hears Reuben's testimony. I'm sure it was an emotionally charged room at this point. The memories that Joseph tried so hard to bury deep are now being unearthed. And he opens a door now, and he needs to walk through it. The emotions are gushing. The feelings, the fear he felt, the pain, the anger, all come to the surface, and he can't hide anymore. It says in verse 24, and he turned away from them and wept. He weeps. He's overwhelmed by it all. It's probably why we don't like to pursue reconciliation with people that have hurt us. Or maybe why we've misdefined it or changed it. Because we don't want to revisit the pain. We don't want to revisit the trauma, the evil, and so we bury it. And we dig deep holes and, and stick it in there, hoping that it'll never see the light of day again. Some have learned this from your parents. You've learned it from your generation. It doesn't make it helpful. It doesn't make it right. There is most definitely a price to pay when revisiting an old wound because the wounds open up and, and they hurt and they ache and they come back to throb and, and tears usually follow. See, friends, there's no reconciliation without a cost. And Joseph is paying a cost, but so will the brothers. It says, and he took Simeon from them and bound them before his eyes. In verse 25, and Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? And skipping down to verse 35, as they emptied their sacks, their home now, behold, every man's bundle of money was in their sack. And when they, they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin? All this has come against me. And then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons, but do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go, go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. 
As they leave Egypt, they stop for a rest, and one of the brothers realizes that his money has been put back in their sack. And with this, we hear the very first time that God is mentioned from the mouth of the brothers. And this is the kindness of God. But even God's kindness can make you feel afraid. It says their hearts failed them, meaning it was burning inside. It was, it was burdening them. The guilt they must have felt now turning to this fortune, it causes them to see the hand of God in this act. And perhaps this is the first time maybe in their life they realize that God does see everything. There is strength to a grieved conscience, like light to sore eyes. And they're forced to think of God. And this act of kindness perhaps doesn't make them feel any better because we find no pleasure in true kindness when we live in disobedience to God. Even the goodness of God tastes like stale bread to a disobedient mouth. And we come away wondering, why would he be so kind to us? It says they, they fear. And they get home and inform their father of all that happened to them in Egypt. And as they empty their bags, their hearts sank even more because all of the brothers have their silver. I mean, think of this. Put yourself in their position. They look guilty before their dad. Why? Because they come back with one brother missing and all of their money. How does this look? It's deja vu again, right? 20 years earlier, they come back with Joseph's jacket and 20 pieces of silver. I mean, to lose one brother would be a horrible misfortune. But to do it again, it's complete carelessness to those that observe it. See, God is pressing in right now in them pushing against the guilt that has been welling up in their hearts and their souls? Will they confess their sin openly? Will they repent? Spurgeon said it's easy to commit sin, but hard to confess it. See, there's no reconciliation unless there's confession. Before we're able to feel the healing of God's love being poured out into our hearts, we have to face our sin. We must. That's why confession of sin is so crucial to the life of a Christian and their worship. Friends, when was the last time you confessed sin? Do you have to think about that? When was the last time you were on your knees, broken and undone by your sin? Friends, have you ever done this? If you recognize that you are of no use to God or fellow humans until you acknowledge who you really are. It will do us no good to pretend that our past sins and failures are just in our past because of other people or simple circumstances or upbringing or environment. We need to recognize our sin. The Apostle John says in 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Are you deceived right now? Is the truth dwelling in you? We need to confess sins because we naturally love darkness. When we walk in darkness, we're walking against the freedom God offers us in the light. And if you're walking in sin, friends, today is the day to 
to confess your sins and to turn from your sins. And the promise of the next verse in 1 John is for you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful even when you're not. He will forgive and he will cleanse. The hope here is deferred for the moment in Genesis 42. Jacob is grieved. Simeon is in prison. Joseph is waiting. Brothers are guilty. They're all living with hope deferred. That's chapter 42. Let's move to chapter 43. Waiting for real change. What about Jacob? Has he really changed? In chapter 42, verse 4, he doesn't send Benjamin because he feared that harm would come upon him. And when the brothers return from Egypt without Simeon, what does Jacob do? He, he talks about himself. You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this comes against me. Joseph had asked for Benjamin to come back with the brothers and Jacob will not hear of it. My son will, will not go down. He will not allow him to go. It's his boys. It's, it's about him. My children, my son, his grief, his bereavement. It's all about Jacob. He really hasn't changed since we learned about him in chapter 37 in this story. And the question is, can the hardest heart really change? Is, is any real deep personal change possible? Or should we resolve to never expect any changes with people? They are the way they are, and so we just need to get used to it. Change is possible because of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. And what we see in most Christians is a, is a slow process of change. All Christians are in mid-story in our growth in Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to write that down. Maybe it'll help you this week as you interact with other people. All Christians are in mid-story in our growth in Jesus Christ. Don't lose heart. To be truly reconciled, there needs to be repentance and remorse over sin, a kind of genuine repentance that brings about a changed life. But it takes time. And we are slow as humans. We'll look at, verse, we'll look at chapter 43, verse 1. Well, the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to them, the man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why do you treat me so badly as to tell me that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have any a brother? What were you to tell him? It was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know what he would say? Bring your brother down. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will pledge his, of his safety from my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would not have returned twice. We had now returned twice. You see, Judah is becoming more vocal. And what a change we see in Judah's life. He speaks wisely and boldly to his father. He makes a pledge. He, he invokes a curse on himself. He's, he's risking his family fortune and even his own life to save the rest of the family. And this is a different offer than the boneheaded offer of Reuben. Okay? What did Reuben risk? 
his two sons. Way to go, Reuben. But we have Judah here risking his own life. His own life on the line. And he hasn't completely changed yet. There hasn't been a complete confession yet. But substitute change is not often sudden. it's, It's not a 180 degree instantly. It usually happens in small steps, moving slowly. Perhaps this is what you should look for in your strained relationships. Sometimes, though, we demand unrealistic levels of transformation from people and refuse to make any concessions until the person has changed completely and meets then all of our standards. We forget that change is a process. We forget that they are in process. And in so doing, we forget that we also are in process of change. I don't know if this is news to you, but you haven't arrived. And neither have I. God's word of sanctification in our hearts is a process, and it doesn't always move as fast as we would like. But as Christians who find their hope in Jesus Christ, because we know ourselves to be sinners, we need to celebrate the small steps of confession and growth in others. And this story shouts to us that there's hope for our relationships. It shows us that there's hope for our dysfunctional families. The end of your story, the end of your family's story isn't written yet. God's still working. God hasn't walked away. So let's skip ahead here. Those brothers make their way back to Egypt. Look down to verse 23. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and your God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when they had given their donkeys fodder, they, they prepared the, the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He's still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out. For his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber, and he wept there. And then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. See, there's a cost for Joseph to bring about reconciliation with his brothers. See, most biblical narrators don't often show us the internal emotion of the people, but here he tells that Joseph was so overcome with emotion that he had to leave the room and weep. He cried so much that he had to make a concerted effort to control himself, to clean himself up. This is the second time we read of Joseph weeping. See, Joseph wasn't standing back. He wasn't away from them, orchestrating these events stoically from a safe, happy distance. He was close, and it was difficult. But he really seems to want reconciliation with his brothers. So he's going, he's willing to go to great lengths to see it happen. It's never just the guilty party that pays the cost for reconciliation. It's also those who've been sinned against. 
And if you've ever been sinned against, you must be willing to bear some cost to have reconciliation. And there perhaps will be tears and pain, but that's the only way to peace. The temptation may be to gloss over things or to rush, but real reconciliation takes time. It takes change. And pursuing reconciliation is definitely hard and costly, but friends, it's worth it. Jump down to verse 32. They served him by himself and they by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before them, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any others. And they drank and were merry with them. See, reconciliation hasn't happened yet. Joseph's still on, the, on a fact-finding mission, and he wants to know, have, have the brothers really changed? And they serve food, and like the Egyptian tradition, Joseph eats away from them. The Egyptians were famous for not eating with foreigners. But something interesting happens. As Joseph seats the brothers, the firstborn down to the youngest, it amazes them that he would know this. And then the food's served. And, and the food's served, and Benjamin gets five times as much food as his brother's. Why? Joseph is, is trying to draw out their hearts here. He wants to know if the brothers still have evil in their hearts towards these brothers, towards these two, towards Benjamin. So he would be seen here. Will, will favor that he gives to Benjamin arouse envy and jealousy again in these men? One character, though, that we glossed over in the story thus far is Jacob. What's God doing in Jacob's life? See, God is working to bring peace in the lives of his brothers, but what about peace for Jacob? This, this whole story of, of Benjamin going to Egypt and Jacob having to release him wasn't about stealing peace from Jacob, but to restore peace to a new and better state. God was working not just to restore Benjamin safely, but he was also working to return Joseph back to him. But to do this, God has to break this toxic grip that Jacob had on Rachel's kids. Idolatry was evident in Jacob's life concerning his boys, Joseph and Benjamin. To Jacob, life without Joseph and now Benjamin would be living hell. Hopeless and dark and pointless. There's no meaning, no purpose. You hear it in his words. And see, Jacob was so focused on God's plan to bring about the promise made to Abraham. And for Jacob, it was only possible. It was only possible through the two boys that Rachel gave him. He couldn't see any farther. For God to work in his life, he, he had to take both Joseph and Benjamin away from him so that he could bring them back again purified and reconciled with the family together. See, Jacob would be forced to trust God alone to fulfill his promise. He would need to trust God all by himself. No one was with him. No other comfort was given. Just God's promise. This is about idols here with Jacob. Friends, what are the idols in your life that you cling to so tightly that you cannot imagine life without? Where is it in your life do you find yourself saying to God, Give me this, or my life will not be worth living. Is it a relationship? It's a, 
marriage, a family, a career, a recognition. Or maybe you're longing for a healed relationship, a new job, or a better home, or a family that doesn't hurt you in such harmful ways. All these can be good things. There's nothing wrong for wanting to be married. There's nothing wrong for wanting a, a nice home or a healthy family. And the issues are the excessive desire. And that's what we see in Jacob. See, he clung to these two boys in a very unhealthy way. And it's a mark of an idol in our lives. And friends, God will not share his glory with another. God will not share you with an idol. He wants your whole heart. He wants all of you. All of your devotion. And sometimes the most loving thing God will do is remove that thing from your life that you love so dearly so that he can refine you and possibly give it back to you again, purified and enriched and better, more so than you could ever imagine. See, it made sense that God would bring about redemption through the line of Joseph. He was the oldest of Jacob and Rachel. So when he went away, Benjamin then had to be the one. And when Benjamin went away, Jacob was lost. For him, it, it meant no more Messiah. But how little Jacob understood his God. How little he understood election and sovereignty. God would choose whom he desired. He did it when he chose Jacob instead of Esau. And he'd do it again when he would choose Leah to bear Judah, the child from whom the line of the Messiah would come. Not only would it be Judah, but the mother would be Tamar, the Canaanite, Judah's own daughter-in-law. God would take one of the most greatest sins in Judah's life and turn it into the means providing the greatest blessing the world has ever seen. God will do what he desires and no one can question him. This is what it means to be sovereign. God was more than able to bless Jacob without any of his assistance. Jacob needed to trust God. So friends, what are you clinging to? What are you clinging to right now for your worth? What are you so fearful of losing or never having? Christian here, God's, listen, God's greatest good for you is beyond your wildest dreams, but in pursuit of that, he will graciously bring you to painful and challenging situations that will expose idolatries in your heart. And he desires to free you from those things. That you would stop worshiping those things. And you would worship him alone. And to give you a deeper peace that is rooted in the gospel. By which you have been now reconciled to God. And God himself paid the full price of reconciliation through Jesus Christ on the cross. And friends, that's what you need to rest in this morning. Well, we're not quite done. We have one more chapter. Number three, I'm willing to be a substitute. Look at verse one. Then he commanded the steward of the house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of the sack and put my cup, the silver cup, 
in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. And they had gone only a short distance from the city. And now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks? And by that he practices divination. You have done evil in doing this. And when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found, it will shall die. And, will, and we also will be my Lord's servants. And he said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest, and the ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. It's interesting to observe what legalists we all are whenever we feel ourselves to be innocent. What are they ready to do to the man that has the cup in his sack? They're ready to kill him. Aren't people more valuable than cups? See, legalists are, are all ready to condemn people who commit sins that they cannot conceive of themselves committing. Are they really any different than us? Yet, when it comes to our sins, we're much more careful and slow to bring any condemnation to ourselves. Maybe this is the true reason why we are so slow to be reconciled with others. Because we lack the imagination to put ourselves in the shoes of other person who has sinned against us and, and find it hard to think of ourselves in that situation. We, we believe, we're, we're convinced that we would never sin like they have, ignoring all of the parallel ways in which we sin daily. We justify our sins. We pull ourselves away. We distance ourselves so that we can now demand a pound of flesh. We want the justice that's due us. And if only we could pause and see ourselves as sinners who are equally capable of committing the same sins who deserve death for our wickedness. And then maybe, maybe we could show compassion and forgiveness while we wait for reconciliation. In verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you've done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Confession is truly good for the soul. Confession of sins means to give God glory by acknowledging sin and God's right to punish it. And Judah is, in effect, confessing sin. But he's confessing an earlier sin when they threw Joseph in the pit. He's not confessing taking the cup. They know they haven't. He feels the weight. He feels the guilt of what they did those 20 years ago, and he confesses it. But Joseph wants to make sure it's genuine. In the Bible, a, a total reorientation of life is called repentance. And the process for Judah started this morning in chapter 42 when the brothers were thrown into prison. 
And they immediately began to think of what they did to Joseph. But that understanding and now confession will be followed by so much more, which is repentance, a turning away from their sin. Verse 17, Joseph said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found should be my servant, but also for you go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in your Lord's ear, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, a child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I might set his eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And then you said to his servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. And when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we'll all go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to this, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me, I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is Judah. This is the brother who first devised the plan to sell Joseph as a slave. And he's now come full circle by the grace of God, and he's now willing to become a slave to save his own brother. And the process of repentance in the life of a believer is remarkable. If you know your Bible well, you realize that Judah's greatest descendant is none other than Jesus Christ. And one of, of Jesus' greatest works is to intercede for his people before God. Jesus lives to make intercession for his people. But not only that, Jesus was our substitute. And having spoken, having interceded for his brother Judah now speaks for himself in verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. This is monumental, friends. Joseph is putting himself in harm's way for Benjamin's sake. Judah is willing to be a slave rather than his younger brother being a slave. Do you see the significance of what Judah is offering? Judah is the first person in the Bible who willingly offers his life for another. His self-sacrificial love for his brother for the sake of his father, what does that remind you of? Can't you see it? 
points us to Jesus who willingly went to the cross for our sakes and became sin so that he so that we could have life so that the father's wrath to do our sin would be satisfied see the, the story of Judah offering himself for his brother would be repeated over and over and over in the Israelites' homes. Kind of like the story of C.S. Lewis, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? Have you read that? You know, the climax of that story is where, where Aslan goes up and he sacrifices himself, right? It's one of the most powerful pictures. Can you imagine repeating that story to your kids over and over and over? And they see, you think, it's not fair. Why, why would he do this? Substitutes himself. It's all about a substitute. And how this, would, this story would be repeated over and over and this idea would be rolling around the minds of people decade after decade of a substitute, a substitute, a substitute for years and years. And in this, can't you see this, friends? How, how glorious God is? He's preparing his people for a substitute. And see, the story of Judah presenting himself in the place of Benjamin, it, it points our minds and our hearts to Jesus Christ, who would actually offer himself as a sacrifice and a substitute for his people. This Messiah, Jesus Christ, would become known as coming from the lion of the tribe of Judah. And Joseph creates this opportunity with God's help for his brothers to come face to face with some of the same choices that they had made 20 years ago. And this opportunity allows them to show that the repentance is real. Because Judah was willing to suffer for a crime that he didn't commit. They were all forgiven for a crime that they did commit. Friends, this story is all about Jesus. It points to him and what he did for us on the cross. And you might be tempted this morning. In the last few weeks, maybe you're, you're trying to find yourself in the story. Maybe your hearts gravitate thinking that you're Joseph because you felt wronged. Or, or maybe you're now you're Judah because you think you're always the one to have to come and rescue and to help, to pull people out of their mess. But you're not Joseph. And you're not Judah in the story. You're the brothers. We're the brothers. We're the ones that threw Joseph in that pit. We're the ones who mocked him. We're the ones who were jealous, who were filled with anger and malice and revenge. And we stood outside of that pit and we laughed. And you sat next to the pit and you ate your, your lunch with no concern. You heard the cries for help and you did nothing. And likewise, you and I are the ones who nailed Jesus to the cross. It was our sin that placed him there. And you and I stood in that crowd and cried, crucify him. You were there. We were there. Before we can see, the, before we can understand and see the cross as something done for us, leading to worship and amazement, we need to understand and see the cross has done something by us, leading to repentance. 
when we're finally willing to share in the guilt of the cross, then and only then you can share of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Friends, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you need to turn from your ways of sin and turn to Christ. He is patiently waiting. And when we understand that we're the brothers, then we can know how to be reconciled with others. What could possibly motivate you to extend love and forgiveness and to seek costly reconciliation with people who have hurt you and harmed you? It's only when we ponder how greatly we have been forgiven and reconciled to a holy God through Jesus Christ. It's only through that. What will we do now? What will Joseph do now as we end chapter 44? Well, you'll have to come back next week or read your Bible this week. Lord willing, we'll seek to learn how to forgive next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. I thank you for your word that teaches us and guides us. I thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells us as believers, who, who works in our lives, who convicts us of sin. Father, I pray for those that are seated here that feel the weight of guilt and sin in their lives, and I pray that they would repent of it, that they would confess it to you and turn from it in repentance. And you say in your word, you're faithful and just to forgive us, and so we believe you. Help them to be faithful in that process. And we pray, God, also for those that are seated here that have no relationship to you, that maybe have attended church all their life, and have never bowed the knee to you. They call themselves a Christian, but they don't live in that way at all. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That you would give them faith to believe, to turn from their selfish ways of pleasing themselves only and look to please you most. May they understand that today, God. May they seek to live that way today. And may they tell others that they desire to do that today. Father, help us. Continue to encourage us along this, this road as we seek to serve you, as we seek to, to spend eternity with you. One day, God, we, we wait for you. And we ask for you to come soon. For your honor and glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.